Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. As we wrap up the last quarter of the year, Andrew Marchese, Fidelity Canada Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager, offers his thoughts on various Canadian sectors and key themes that may shape the markets in 2023. He comments on the rallies in the market as of late. He says we have entered bear market territory. And if you look at historical precedents, bear market rallies in double-digit percentage points are not uncommon. Andrew also discusses the potential of a recession in 2023. He says at this point, it is at least highly probable, but not necessarily certain. Where we go from here and how does the Fed and Bank of Canada navigate from this point forward is what we should focus on. Today's podcast was recorded on November 2nd, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So I want to start off with the sort of the big October news. Um, you know, uh, Halloween was just around the corner, but we actually did not have a scary month of the markets out of all the sort of the bad news that has been building up. Uh, October was actually the best month, at least for the Dow Jones, since 1976. What do you make of that? What, what does that mean? Well, as everybody knows, we've been kind of in a bear market for this year. We've entered a bear market territory. And if you look at historical precedents, Bear market rallies of double digit percentage points are not uncommon. So I think part of it may be seasonality. Um, part of it may be uh, with an outlook 12 months out from here. So you start talking about, you know, Q4 of 2023 and people thinking maybe things might look better by that point in time. So uh, one, bear market rallies are commonplace and sometimes double digit percentage rallies. And from a seasonality perspective, as well as the fact that we got kind of oversold from a technical perspective in the market um, in the latter portion of September, it's not surprising to see kind of some reversal in sentiment. The true test will be if that will persist going forward. Um, you know, in my intro mentioned the Federal Reserve uh, rate announcement, which is happening later this afternoon. What are you expecting from that? And, uh, and you know, how could that impact the markets today? Uh, as you said, it, it, market consensus is for a 75 basis point hike. I think really what the market's going to be focused on is uh, what is the language they use for future interest rate hikes, their viewpoint on both inflation, uh, employment, factors they're considering, any change in language whether it's positive or negative from previous Fed meetings, I think is really going to be under the scope of investors' uh, focus. Um, and so we're, you know, we don't, I don't, never have made predictions on what interest rates will be or where they will go. We're just looking at a lot of data day in and day out and trying to uh, really see what the impact is going to be for the securities that we want to invest in as opposed to worrying too much about Fed speak. Great. Although, you know, a lot of investors are wondering now uh, if, if a recession is coming, when will that happen? How will that affect 
my stocks. I mean, usually, you know, the stock market does kind of decline before the economy declines. Um, so, so for investors who may be worried about a recession, what is your message to them? Well, as you said, the stock market is a forward-looking discounting mechanism. And so if you look at history, you, you can go back, you know, 120 years and look at history, you know, some common metrics that we're going to look at, inversion of the yield curve basically over every timeline, um, reduction and negative growth in the monetary base. Historically, these two factors in particular have the highest predictive uh, ability about a future recession. And they're both, both flashing negative right now. When you have both of them flashing negative concurrently, uh, at least historically, they've predicted a recession. Now, you know, the past is not always a predictor of the future. Uh, but I think most of investors are coming to the grips with if uh, a North American recession uh, has to be deemed at least highly probable, not necessarily certain, right? And so now where we go from here is how does the Federal Reserve and the Bank of Canada, for that matter, navigate from this point forward? And that's what we're really going to focus on. When, when, you, when you look at where the stock market is at today, um, how do valuations look? Could they decline further or, or you know, given that they've already fallen so much, um, where, where do you see valuations going yeah, I think much of the decline in the market, if not all of the decline in the market, and we'll, we'll call the market the S&P 500 because it, it, it's the broadest, deepest kind of market out there to examine. Most of the decline this year has all been about evaluation derating on the back of uh, higher interest rates due to high, you know, higher than expected and more persistent inflation. And so we've seen multiples across the board uh, compress those that were the most expensive stocks coming into the year have compressed the most, i.e., you know, largely speaking, growth or technology stocks, large cap growth in particular, has really kind of compressed. Where we are today from a valuation standpoint, the S&P 500 is trading at almost 17 times earnings, call it about 16.8 times, um, which looks a lot better than it did coming into the year. Now, that being said, if you kind of correct for where interest rates are and use you know, time series or history as a guide, one could make the argument that there still may be another one to two points of PE multiple compression that needs to occur based on where interest rates are. I think that might be getting a little fine, but that's kind of where we are. The one caveat in all that, or the one thing I find uh, a little perplexing um, is that the equity risk premium for the market hasn't budged this entire year. So it's sitting just above 2%, which is historically low despite the move up in interest rates. So we have to um, monitor that. And I guess it, it, that will get affected if the earnings revisions in the marketplace by Wall Street and Bay Street become deeper or more prolonged. I would imagine that should be the knock-on effect that we should see the equity risk premium rise a little bit if earnings revisions have to repeatedly come down in 2023. Um, and it's one thing to note uh, from a valuation perspective on the market. Maybe talk a bit more about that. So, you know, revising to the negative is what is what you're saying. I mean, have we been seeing that? And and um, and I guess maybe why are, are we seeing some of that right now? 
Yeah. So if you look at earnings growth for the S&P 500, I think Wall Street consensus right now for next year is about one and a half percent growth. But it's really kind of lifted by the energy sector. We all know that, you know, energy fundamentals for oil and gas companies have been very, very strong. Um, utilities are contributing a little bit to that. Uh, the rest of the market seems to be in a negative growth, at least from a consensus perspective, prediction standpoint. Um, and the question then becomes is, Will we see more of that? In other words, has consensus adequately discounted profits in the face of what we saw, you know, over the last 12 months, which was rising commodity prices, rising labor costs for corporations, uh, higher interest rates, which obviously uh, increases one's uh, debt service, you know, burden um, and all that kind of is impacting profits. The question now becomes, with interest rates having moved up so much, how will demand for various goods and services be affected in 2003? So a lot of what I just mentioned is on the cost or expense side of the equation. The next point is obviously interest rates going up will have a negative effect on demand for goods and services. How much, right? How much will the demand kind of weaken over the course of next year? And that will gauge whether, you know, if we have an accurate handle on that, that will gauge if earnings have been sufficiently discounted either by predictions or by price in the market. And once you have either of those, and most hopefully it's usually price for all the reasons we mentioned earlier around the market being a forward-looking discounting mechanism, then the market can kind of take off from that point and not wait around until everything kind of gets better. So that's where, we're, that's where we come to play at Fidelity. You know, we have um, a, a just an inordinate amount of resources located globally that are doing fundamental due diligence on publicly traded companies and trying to see if, you know, consensus estimates are too optimistic, too pessimistic, or just about right. And then understanding full well what the intrinsic value is for each of the securities that we're conducting diligence on. And when you get your, you know, your price trading below your intrinsic value, you, you're going to want to act and you're going to want to act with conviction. Um, interest rates rising, you know, as you said, could impact demand for goods. But what about demand for stocks, um, especially maybe some of the defensive sectors that historically people gravitate to when times are tough, but now, uh, you know, you can get a bond with a, with a, with a decent coupon. So how does uh, rising rates might impact some of the opportunities in the market? Yeah, I think, you know, you just made an interesting point about fixed income in the sense that, you know, when we came into the year, like fixed income, if you invert the yield was trading at about 175 times, it's kind of like it, it would be kind of like saying the P.E. of a, a fixed income instrument. Now you're down to 25 times. So relative to equities, they don't look as bad. I guess what you have to kind of determine in that is, are we close to kind of yields peaking out at some kind of duration? So somewhere out on the curve. And if so, if we get a slowdown, a further slowdown in the North American economy, will 10-year yields then begin to fall in which, you know, obviously fixed income will look better from an investment perspective. But I think, you know, um, you're right that people tend to uh, invest into defensive securities and groups, consumer staples, utilities, as the economy becomes a little bit squishier and you want to avoid cyclicality. That's the usual playbook. But I think what you want to do right now is do a lot of homework, not on the defensive stocks, because, you know, for most people, you should have been there at least in part at the start of the year and probably more so as the year transpired. So now you want to look at the stuff maybe that has been really beaten down and that you've managed to avoid. And that doesn't mean you need to buy it today or tomorrow, but you do have to have a working plan to kind of understand what your price is 
for these securities. And that's where we're dedicating a lot of our efforts. We're really, you know, sharpening our pencils on the front end of the economy. Again, doesn't mean we're going to invest today or increase positions in those kind of stocks today or tomorrow. We just need to do our homework uh, because, quite frankly, you know, they, we know since the start of the year, many of those securities have been the places you wanted to avoid. And so now you need to revisit them, given that the correction in prices have been you know, fairly significant in some cases. So what, what are we talking about? What sectors uh, look interesting, maybe for a bit of a more risk on, you know, attitude that investors may want to take? Yeah. So back in September, I talked about at some point, maybe in the second half of 2023, if, if uh, you know, the Federal Reserve and central banks can kind of get inflation under control, we, we further slow down. But maybe at some point there will be the opportunity late next year to add risk in a consistent manner and prepare for a new economic cycle. When you talk about a new economic cycle, you're looking at the front end of the economy, which generally means consumer discretionary stocks, transportation. Um, you may want to visit, revisit technology even before that, because a lot of these companies can grow uh, with or without an economic tailwind, provided the price is right, right? So if it makes sense from an investment perspective based on valuation. Um, Financials are typically historically front end of the economy stocks. But, you know, we have a ways to go here to work out, you know, what is the extent of the economic slowdown? Rather than using the, the term recession or not recession, uh, hard landing or soft landing, you know, there's an economic slowdown coming. We need to determine the depth and the duration of it to have a better handle on, you know, kind of when to reorient a product towards more early cycle stocks. And that's the kind of homework going, we're going through right now. Um, we're getting some questions in from advisors and there's a, there's a few on Canada here. So, so why don't maybe just to start uh, and I'll, I'll get into some of these is um, what, what are your thoughts on the Canadian market and are there sectors within our market that you're seeing opportunities in? Yeah, I think, you know, when people think of Canada, they think of financials and energy almost first and, and foremost, particularly if you're an international investor in that Canada's held up a little bit better uh, than the rest of the world this year, uh, chiefly the United States. Uh, I think, you know, the, one of the questions we're having to ask ourselves in the oil and gas sector is there's, I think, in my estimation, a, a fairly favorable kind of intermediate term investment thesis around it. It remains to be seen if we have more cyclical headwinds in the economy, if uh, that sector conti continue to perform well, particularly since, you know, the stocks have done fairly well. Uh, for the last two years. So, you know, we're really examining that sector on a case by case basis, not treating it as kind of a holistic type of group. Um, I think the one thing people have to think about with respect to Canada, it comes back to the Canadian consumer. Um, we are far more interest rate sensitive than our neighbors to the south. Right. So I think to the extent that interest rates continue to go up, we are uh, more extended from a borrowing perspective, from a leverage perspective, chiefly as the result of housing and real estate. And that has a knock on effect to spending. Right. So will the spending slowdown be more material in Canada versus um, the United States? And what impact would that have, you know, longer term on the currency? Right. You can't you know, may not, you might reach a level where you can't raise rates as much as a result, right? And you might even, who knows, in, in the future, get into more of a cutting uh, stance before the U.S. does. And that has a negative consequence for the Canadian dollar vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. dollar. So these are all the things we're kind of debating in our head. 
But I think on an idiosyncratic basis, there's a lot of interesting idiosyncratic stories in Canada, in consumer, in industrial technology. Uh, so we're really kind of paying attention to those things. But from an international investor perspective, it always comes back down to kind of energy uh, financials and maybe to a secondary extent materials. Think about gold or mining in general. Of course, you know, housing is coming up in some of these questions. And do you have any concern about sort of Canada's debt levels in general and also our housing market? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things you always have to alert yourself to is to the extent that uh, Canadians are kind of overlevered, overexposed to housing. So you're kind of like balance sheet rich and a little cash flow poor. That kind of thesis becomes a little bit more concerning as interest rates move up. The knock on effect in terms of spending in the economy, particularly if the slowdown continues to uh, persist or get deeper than you start talking about things like unemployment rates rise. You know, one thing when you talk about a recession, uh, there's several things in any recession that look different, except for unemployment rising. That's consistent. That metric is consistent on every North American recession that's ever been recorded. So if you have higher interest rates and possibly higher unemployment levels, um, you do have to be worried about the extent of um, debt exposure, you know, and debt burden for Canadian consumers, and then the knock-on effect in terms of spending and the economy kind of getting back on its feet. Um, these are all things we think about very generally, but one of the, because there's so many moving parts and the spectrum of outcomes is fairly wide, what we prefer to do is really get down into the single security level and really examining the risk at each business model level to kind of spot where there's opportunities and differences between, you know, one company in an industry versus another company in the same industry. We haven't, I mean, you mentioned unemployment rates, but they haven't really gone, like changed much over the last while other than, so, so what, uh, why is that? If we're expecting to see that, is it just coming or is something else going on right now? I think there's a few things going on. One, it's, the, it's the most lagging of all indicators. One, like it's usually the last resort type of indicator that tends to move up. Uh, number two, I think there are still several disruptions in supply chains, including um, certain areas of the economy are suffering from labor shortages, um, very much so. Um, you know, and so we've kind of hypothesized and talked amongst ourselves within the Canadian team about, you know, does the unemployment picture in this slowdown look a little bit different? Like the, you'd still expect the number to move up to some degree if it's truly a recession, but does it move up as much as you think it is? Because there seems to be kind of imbalances in the labor force themselves. So um, it's one thing to monitor, and it may mean that certain industries actually don't have to lay off. Um, and maybe in sense, in some sense, that's a good thing, right? Other areas, there may be the economy might be a little fat, and so. Naturally, over the course of the last decade, it drew workers to those industries for a variety of reasons. And maybe those industries will be more impacted than you would otherwise think. So we really have to kind of do our diligence um, and talk to the companies in that respect to get a better handle on what companies and industries may be more or less affected. Um, another uh, one more question on Canada, unless more come in. But uh, someone wants to know what the Bank of Canada's neutral rate um what is the Bank of Canada's neutral rate and will we get back there or do you see it changing to reflect a new normal? 
Yeah, good. That's a good question. And, and uh, not to be coy or anything, but that's always a moving target. And the Bank of Canada would probably tell you the same thing. Um, you know, the dot plot in, in the U.S., if you look at the Federal Reserve, the terminal rate right now is, is forecasted to be, I think, around 48 4.9%. Um, we'll see after today's meeting, right? And so we'll have a little bit more news around 2 p.m. today to see if, if that's accurate and that's a consensus kind of number or if it needs to move higher or possibly even lower. So um, it's the one thing that everybody keeps talking about from an investment perspective are the terminal rates uh, you know, for both of those central banks, which is why I said, you know, and I said this back in September, the move that we've had in equities to the downside has largely been based on derating. We're getting closer to having a better tightening up that spectrum of outcomes from here, where it was in January, about where interest rates could go to about here. And I think that's the important part. Like I, I you know, it's it's not about trying to determine is the number is the right number five, is it five and a half? You're you're reducing kind of the spectrum of outcomes. And once you got a better handle on the spectrum of outcomes, I think you 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 can have more information or better information to put in your calculations about what you want to actually pay for a security, whether it's an equity or fixed income or or real estate or anything else for that matter. Um, let's move uh, across the border um, and, and look at global markets in the U.S. Um, is the U.S. still a safe haven amidst all the global uncertainty? And are we close to uh, you know emerging markets looking more attractive? Um, the U.S. If you again, if you look at 120 years of, of history, or, or maybe probably closer to 80 to 100, the U.S. dollar is you know the reserve currency of the world. It is a low beta currency in times of crises and times of economic stress. It does better. This year is, you know, kind of a great example of that. The U.S. dollar has done better than just about everything. Um, and so I think, you know, I think fundamentally it makes a lot of sense, too. The, the, the question about emerging markets gets a little bit more complicated. Um, and, and I think because of that, there are still some remnants of disruption as it relates to COVID going on that you see less so in the G10 type of economies, um, complications with supply chain, bigger picture issues like demographics and deglobalization, de right? You know, there's some people who postulate we've seen kind of peak globalization and we're getting more away from that. And that could be debated, you know, the speed and the magnitude thereof could certainly be debated. Um, it gets a little bit more complicated in, in emerging markets. In emer you know, from an investment standpoint in emerging markets, what you do want to see is global synchronized growth. And for anybody who's seen me present kind of where we are in the economic cycle chart, we're definitely late cycle in kind of the developed economies. China has been in a growth recession for this entire year. And some of the emerging economies are still down there in the contraction phase of and what you need is to get through all of that. Um, it's complicated by the fact that there are some structural imbalances and some demographic imbalances in place here that kind of muddy the waters a little bit. Um, you know, so I think from a uh, from my standpoint, this is, and this is just my personal opinion, uh, I've been very favorable on some things in the U.S. I, I do think the the U.S. dollar has been um, uh, justified in have being having its strength this year. And so we'll see how that kind of ferrets out into, you know, 2023 and beyond. Um, another question coming in on, on dividends, the importance of dividends in 2023. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I think um, 
extremely important. I think cash flow and companies doing the right thing from a capital allocation perspective, including buying back their stock or paying out dividends, is going to be vital to outperformance. If you look at the payout ratio for the S&P 500, it's about roughly 85% of earnings. So that's pretty good. That's where, you know, that's generally speaking at the high end of the range, but a consistently high end of the range of, with low volatility, low variance. So that's great to see. Share buybacks right now are about 6.7%. I think they peaked out at around 7, 7.1% in 2019. Um, and really, as, I, as for those on the call who have heard me speak before, share buybacks had a lot to do in addition to lower interest rates about the appreciation of the equity markets and the outperformance of US large cap growth, because a lot of those stocks are really free cash flow machines that ended up buying back their, their own stock. And that actually catalyzed in some part, a meaningful part, their outperformance uh, against other equities. So this will continue to be extremely important. I think we're still in the phase of the market where uh, delivering uh, high investment quality companies, i.e. those with good balance sheets, those that are free cash flow positive, that you know are managing their maintenance capex and growth capex and can continue to invest in their businesses accordingly and where they can't, they can buy back stock. All of that is beneficial to shareholders. So typically at this phase of the cycle, investment quality, high profitability and high free cash flow are, are factors that generally historically have done very well in the marketplace. You mentioned uh, earlier that valuations could potentially come down a bit more. Uh, there's a question about just, just how much the markets have discounted the bad news. Could there be farther to go? And is there anything that you're looking at um, that could indicate uh, signs of better things to come? Yeah. So if we think about the economic backdrop, and we've all kind of said slow down with, if you look at historical metrics, there is a high probability of a recession in 2023. You naturally go to where profits can go to. It. I have not found any precedent that suggests the market will bottom before you get to the recession. Okay, so is you know that that um, not to say that couldn't happen. There's just no historical precedent for it, at least from all the research that I've conducted. Um, so then the question is, in the typical playbook, in the historic playbook, generally speaking, the market on average bottoms about six months prior to the end of a recession. What we're looking for is you take the individual securities on a valuation standpoint. I talked about that kind of 16.8 earlier, and you could justifiably, based on where interest rates are, maybe a slight move up in the equity premium equity risk premium saying that number could come down to the high 13s or 14. You take that, couple that with the macroeconomic factors. And I think three things from a macroeconomic standpoint need to be monitored. One is manufacturing PMIs, service PMIs, typically falling below 50. That should start to alert your attention that things are getting weaker. That's okay, because that's gonna mean investment opportunity. New orders getting weaker. They are below 50 right now. So as those numbers converge towards the mid 40s, or if it's uh, it's a, it's a greater slowdown than when we currently think to the low 40s, that is a huge opportunity. The other thing that needs to happen from that standpoint is you have to get better comfort on the spectrum of outcomes from a profitability standpoint. In other words, do you think the largest extent of any earnings revisions, negative earnings revisions, are largely done? Not necessarily every one. 
But at some point, the market will have discounted that one, even though it hasn't been printed, and it will move forward. So that's the second point. The third point is you need a change in rhetoric by central banks, an admission that they've gone far enough. And even that movement to neutral, um, I think this time around might actually be a better signal than even waiting for the first rate cut. Historically, you start to see those front end economy stocks that I talked about, um, savings and loans banks, consumer discretionary stocks, very discretionary stocks, start to move actually first, like as the Fed starts cutting rates and the economic news sounds horrible, those stocks actually start to outperform because the market's already looking you know, over the valley and, and to the other side. So those are the three things that I think you need to monitor. And if they come together in a dovetail fashion, that's a very strong buy indicator for risk, right? But we, in between there, I talked about bear market rallies earlier. You know, the market gets very excited when they see a better inflation print and gets very disappointed when they see sees a, a worse inflation print. I think you're going to get a lot of that sentiment. To me, it's, it's a lot more about, you know, economic activity going forward, PMIs, manufacturing and service, interest rate sentiment by central banks, and then most importantly, valuation dovetailing with what you think is close to an adequately revised profit number for a variety of companies and industries. You get all three together, and that's why we're doing our homework now, you better act with conviction, because if you don't, you're, you're never going to quite believe it when it starts working. There will always be a reason to doubt yourself. You can't get into the doubt scenario because you'll miss the opportunity. Great. Um, we only have a minute left. So and I got I got two two quick questions. One one last uh, uh, advisor question is just on Europe. What's your view on Europe and, and recent currency movements there? Could there be contagion in other international markets? And I'll, and I'll close with one other after that. Yeah, that, it's a good question. Um, and this is my personal opinion. I've kind of been negative on Europe for a long time. And unfortunately, with the war, um, manufacturing reliance on Russia from an energy perspective, um, demographic uh, headwinds from a growth perspective, I've, I've kind of viewed Europe from a very top down perspective, as you can kind of see. And I've been um, personally, I've been a little bit more negative on it than uh, I would be, say, other particularly North American markets like like uh, the US and Canada. So that's kind of my my quick answer on that one. And just, just you know, you, we've covered a lot of ground here. You're not uh, traveling the world yourself and looking at all these places and analyzing every company. Tell me a bit about your team and how this is kind of a, a team effort at Fidelity. Yeah, we're, uh, we're back full steam, kind of like back in the office and traveling and meeting companies and, and going to conferences and having companies up here in our doors in Toronto and and sitting down with them. And, and we have those resources globally, right? So Australia, uh, Hong Kong, Japan, uh, continental Europe, the US obviously, and, and Canada. And, and we're all talking to each other about what we're seeing in the various industries and securities that we covered, comparing notes. Um, and and it's, it's an interesting world. It's, it's less, it's more heterogeneous than probably it's ever been about people's perspective on what's going on in the economy, whether you're talking about supply chains, labor, uh, sustainability, uh, climate. You know, you you meet people from all over the globe. I consider myself very fortunate because I have the opportunity to meet people from all over the globe, both through Fidelity and, and uh, outside of Fidelity. It's interesting to hear the perspectives on the world. And so 
by having more people on the ground, you get more perspectives. You're able to kind of just hear more perspectives. I always think that's very useful in trying to compose an investment thesis because if you kind of um, live in a vacuum or, or you don't you know, spread your wings, so to speak, you will have a myopic view of what's actually going on. So the more you can incorporate into an investment thesis, I think increases the probability that you'll have a comprehensive investment thesis and therefore increases the probability that you'll be correct in your investment decision. I unfortunately have to leave it there. This was a great discussion. Um, I I'm, I'm look forward to chatting again at some point. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks again, Brian. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.